Welcome to episode 221 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. As you likely know, I am a virtual event design consultant and executive Zoom producer, none of which was true prior to April 2020. The path to go from my former business plan to my current business plan was anything but easy or clear. Along the way, I had some small wins, which led to bigger wins and a strong sense that what I was trying to accomplish would be possible. I recently signed a big new client and the opportunity was exciting for the amount of money I could possibly earn, but also because it meant I'd stumbled upon an entirely new offer. They're the ones who gave me the title Executive Zoom Producer because I'm supporting a weekly employee engagement event that their senior team presents at. It also fits because I'm providing strategy for all of their virtual events and assigning the producer role to other Zoom producers whom I've trained through my certification program. This means I now offer a solution for organizations looking to increase employee engagement, and I can scale my impact by subcontracting work to those who earn their certified virtual event professional hashtag no more bad Zoom badge through my 5% Advantage program. I share this not-so-humble brag in a private Facebook group that had been supporting me as I quickly shifted my business to online events. The response was overwhelming, and many said my success gave them hope as they were working on pivoting their own business to meet this new reality. A week or so later, I received a congratulations card in the mail from Melissa Smith, founder of the Association of Virtual Assistants. She had read my post, commented on it, and then took the time to send me a handwritten note to acknowledge this big win and encourage me that this was just the beginning of my success. I have that card on my desk, and it's a reminder that I have an amazing community backing me up as I work long hours trying to keep up with the fast pace that life is moving. It's also a reminder that a handwritten note is a wonderful way to stand out these days and much more memorable than a comment, a private message, or even a text. Your challenge this week, make a plan to send at least one handwritten card a month. Keep an eye out for a reason to send a card. Birthdays, anniversaries, congratulations, condolences, apologies. No stationery? Don't make this too complicated. Just order a plain box of cards if getting branded ones would stop you from taking action. No stamps? Many stores sell them at the register, or you can order them online. No address? Ask for their mailing address, which they'll promptly forget you did, so your card will still be a pleasant surprise. Once you have this all set up, you'll be ready to send a card whenever you think to, which I'm guessing will be way more often than once a month. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's interview. Today's guest is a corporate relationship expert that turns problems into progress. He has devoted his adult life to understanding what makes people tick and how to bring out the best in people, including ourselves. Whether addressing our hidden biases, helping navigate disruption and change, providing leaders with skills that make them indispensable, he provides practical solutions that align with people's real-world experiences. He has worked with hundreds of corporations and government agencies, including the U.S. Secret Service, the Department of Homeland Security, Chase Bank, Estee Lauder, and NASA. He's the author of The Force Multiplier, How to Lead Teams Where Everyone Wins, and shared his expertise in a TEDx talk titled, how to stop settling for less. Please join me in welcoming Chody Chan. What's up, Robbie? 
What's up, Tony? Thank you so much for joining me from your place in Harlem, New York. It's awesome yes. to have you here. Great to be here. As you know, this is a, a show about building strong networks and the context is leadership because as you'd probably agree, uh, no one succeeds in a vacuum. So tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Well, let's go with the first question. And if you mind, don't mind, I'll tell a quick story. You know, a number of years ago, there was a really close friend of mine. And I mean, really close. Like, this is my guy. In fact, not only he and I, but our wives are really close. Our children are close. Our lives are completely intertwined. And so you can imagine how devastated I was when I found out that he was going to be once again deployed to Afghanistan um, just really for the army drawdown. And so we decided to host a party at our house and about 40 of our closest friends, we got around and we ate and drank and we laughed and cried. And at one point we gathered around him and we really shared about how much we would be there for him and be there for his kids and make sure his family's protected. And there was one person I was waiting to hear share. He's a high ranking officer in the army, but I wasn't really prepared for what he'd say because the first words out of his mouth were, you, know, you are what we refer to as a force multiplier because by your very presence, you bring out the best in everything and everyone around you. And when I heard that, it gave me a vocabulary that I didn't have before because often we define leadership as being able to instill a vision and create followers. But I really believe that true leadership is focused around making everyone around you better. And if you can make everyone around you better, you will succeed at being a leader. Wow. I can see why this is a powerful memory for you and how it became the topic and focus of your book. It's a very sticky concept, this idea of a force multiplier. And have you seen this enacted in your own life? Like, is this, when you look back at the, the people who had great leadership skills, did you think, oh yeah, that I can see that it really resonates for me? Uh, yeah, both from the positive and the negative, right? I mean, I've, I've seen people who absolutely weren't that, but I really believe I had mentors and people in my life who helped me to see leadership from the perspective of leading individuals versus leading a herd. And in doing so, being able to properly assess and then work with people on an individual basis to bring out the best in them. And so it, it really, it was both enlightening, but it was also validating because I, I really do believe I'm a fortunate person that people did lead me down that path. But then so much clarity came from that one incident. Mm. So when you think about leadership for yourself, when did you start to realize you maybe had some of these skills yourself? I think it was after my first failure, because what happened is I was put in a position of leadership. And like so many, I was put in because I was a great contributor, not because I showed great leadership potential. And I was failing miserably. And I went to one of my mentors and he began to give me, give me some insight. And the two pieces of insight were, number one, you've got to get rid of the herd mentality. You have to lead individuals. And number two, leadership is about relationships. And we worked on some specific tactics. And from there, I saw my leadership ability skyrocket. And, and I realized at that point, although there is an art and a science to it, we can make this a lot more difficult by focusing on the relationships, be more effective. 
And I really saw, you know, I what ended up happening for me is I began to jump leadership levels. You know, you go from a supervisor to manager to director, and you end up skipping levels in the process that really validated that, you know, this was something once I learned and implemented that I could really do and make a part of my life. Well, I, I want to circle back to this because I, I'm, there's a, you mentioned a couple of things there I wanted to get into, but I first want to ask you what you were like as a kid, because you said that, I assume this was adulthood that you're talking about this failure, right? So, so were you the kind of kid who like, where it was noticed? Are you kind of the quiet one? Like, were you leading kids in the playground, running for office? Like, how did you sort of show up in the world back in the day? Uh, I was very and smart, very smart and very invisible. I would say I really hadn't grown into my confidence. And then honestly, often being the only minority in the room, I really had to, to develop a sense of who I am and the ability to stand up when everyone didn't expect me to. So really it was something, it's fascinating. People who knew me when I was younger, even in high school, they're amazed at who I am now. The truth is I was always that way. I just didn't have the confidence to express it. Yeah, no, I could totally see that. Cause it's, it's, well, I would say I can see how they'd be surprised because I have a hard time imagining you being that, you know, quiet one (laughs) (laughs) holding back. Yeah. But also, like you said, if you're growing up, you know, being the, being the, the black guy with like a singular way, like I can imagine there's a lot of like, you know, just code switching and trying to like keep your head down and just, you know, be present without being seen. It's, it's a very tricky line to walk, but then did you like find your, your way and find a, a community of people when you got to college? Like when did you finally start to feel like you were coming into your own or was it after this, this failure that you were talking about? I started coming into my own probably two thirds of the way through college. I was in a very specialized chemical engineering program and I really developed a sense of confidence now, it wasn't fully developed, but I realized I was constantly around the best of the best. And in a way that hadn't happened previously, I got support and encouragement from them, where from other people, I think I was viewed as more of a threat. And so that was the beginning. Now, I may have taken it over overboard a few times and got a little cocky and arrogant, but that was certainly the beginning of me blossoming into figuring out that I can do this type of stuff. I imagine that you must have been somewhat noticeable for you to have been invited to be part of that program then. So is it because you were smart and like some people noticed that part? Yeah. So I was actually smart. I was advanced in most of my classes. I was, but I, okay. So I was, I was also fortunate. I was smart, but I was insecure and I wasn't given a lot of guidance. So having a son myself, you know, I go back and I realize, oh, that's what was going on. So my oldest son was a national merit scholar, went to an Ivy League school. And it, it some of the conversations we had, it made me realize, oh, when my counselor was talking to me, what he was saying is I had a chance to be a national merit scholar, but he didn't say it in that language. And so I didn't absorb it that way. Right. Um, but where I was fortunate is I had another teacher who took notice of me. And when, you know, as a TA, I got a chance to visit our college. And he made an appointment with the president of the department for him to pick me out and pull me aside. And that conversation led to not only me applying to that school, but me getting a scholarship. And 
it was really that relationship that changed the direction of my life. Wow, that's so powerful. I love hearing these origin stories, especially when they're unexpected. When when you, you see a person who's very confident, assured, and successful, and I think it's hard. You know, I, I always look back at uh, like actually Harvey Milk was the, was the example. I remember watching the movie Milk, and he's laying in bed, and he's like, "I'm turning forty, and I haven't done anything." <laughs> and I was about that age when I was watching that movie, and I was like, "Harvey thought that." what? Like, (laughs) you know, the man's a legend. And so there's no stopping you no matter what age you are of getting started, but it's great that you sort of got that guidance from that teacher who noticed you put you on that path. And then how old were you when you, when you got a first mentor? Cause I heard you earlier, you mentioned that when you had that failure, you turned to your mentor. And I think that's something a lot of people are lacking. So how did you stumble upon that? So I was about 25 and I was, you know, it was one of those things where I'd had managers and coaches, but I found someone, I think we found kindred souls within one another, kindred spirits. And we we were both driven. We liked the same thing. He was far beyond where I was at the time. And I didn't, initially, I thought we had just a friendship. And I, I realized very quickly, he was functioning as my mentor, right? And it wasn't something that I knew a lot about. I mean, I had been a mentor for underprivileged kids, but I hadn't really thought about it from a professional standpoint. And so I, I really stumbled upon it by finding that right person. And I could not have had a better first mentor, in all honesty, because, you know, to this day, I mean, I, he called me Thursday, you know, just a week ago, we were still in contact some 20 something years later because of that relationship. Did someone introduce you or how'd you two first connect? Uh, he got transferred to my department. He was leading it. And I was kind of an up and coming leader and we connected. And once we, it was like the first time we talked, uh, we just like, it was it. That was no question about it. We're together. That's awesome. So many people go through life, really, that's the piece that they're missing is someone that they can continuously go to. It's interesting. I had a, after I left my, uh, my career to focus on my business, I, a few times have met up with my boss that I had for like eight years. And, you know, I never, I mean, she guided me along. I was in my thirties, my entire thirties, I was his job. So like, you know, that's a very growing, (laughs) so that's a growing edge time of your life where you, you kind of realize you don't actually know everything (laughs) and maybe there's more to learn. At some point we had lunch and she said, you know, the tables have turned here. I'm coming to you for advice now. Mm. And do you feel like that happened, that like shifted where you guys start to be peers after all these years? Yes. In fact, it's fascinating. I think that's actually happened with all of my mentors at this stage. All of my mentors throughout my life, I have become peers with and some I have excelled beyond. And so it's a really cool relationship now. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I, I imagine you're also paying it forward and mentoring others. Like how does that fit into your life? Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. So, you know, most of the mentors I had were in corporate America. Then some of them were when I became a business owner like you and you know, in the entrepreneurial world and speaking. And so now I have three people that I'm mentoring. They're all younger, but you know, they're, they're those right people. And, you know, I, I get asked a lot to be, Actually, no, that's not true. I actually don't get asked a lot <laughs> to be somebody's mentor. Um, these were the people that, after we had a relationship with 
it's almost like it was a natural evolution. And so we get together and really with all of them, I feel like I have a vested interest in their success. So I'm trying to bring them in on specific projects. I'm working with them, you know, on their skill sets, but they're just people that I believe one day will either be my peers or will excel beyond me. Yeah. In some ways that's success when you're a mentor is uh, helping them get to that point. So, you know, you mentioned corporate America and now clearly you're the entrepreneur. So, you know, when did that transition start to happen? Was it a mental transition and then you did it or did you just kind of like make the leap? Oh, dude, there's so many steps in between. (laughs) So I left corporate America to work in nonprofit. And it was one of those things where I, I, when I was, I mentioned earlier, I was mentoring at-risk youth. I met a kid that just changed my life. And I thought, okay, I've got to help all of the other kids that are like this. And so, you know, my wife and I, we, we both left our careers to work in nonprofit. Now, the only problem with nonprofit is it's nonprofit, you know, there's no money. It's like, what are we doing? We literally took a 67% cut in pay three weeks after getting married, right? The exact worst thing you're supposed to do. And so we did that for a number of years and gathered a lot of mentors in that space. And then, you know, realized we were burning out. It wasn't the right thing, you know? And when we left, then it was a reinvention. And I started a business with a friend realized, okay, that's good, but it's not the right thing. And so I remember pulling together a group of my friends who are kind of my, lack of a better phrase, they're my advisory board, right? And we meet at one of their houses on a Sunday and one asked the proverbial, if you could do anything with your life, what would it be? And I was thinking about business development, but I just almost reflexively said, well, gosh, if I could do anything, I'd figure out how to get paid to speak. But, but, and before I could get butt out, the wheels are already turning. We're moving. And literally three weeks later, I was in Bermuda opening for Les Brown. And it was just what? one of those, like my <laughs> whole thing changed. And so that was kind of, again, that power of relationships. Wow. Okay. I was like, Wow. Okay. That was amazing. I got to, I got to unpack that a little bit. (laughs) Okay. Let's go. So one, Dory Clark introduced me to this idea of you're calling it an advisory board. Um, uh, but this, this idea of having a council, you know, appears and which are different than your mentors. Sometimes it's your mentors. Sometimes it's just people you trust. And, um, I, I love that you were in a moment of transition. So you gather them Sometimes, you know, sometimes you meet with people individually, you actually have them kitchen. I've heard them called the kitchen cabinet, (laughs) you know, all kinds of things, gather them around the table, talk about what you got to talk about and that they didn't let you get the word butt out because you just said the thing that you really meant, even though you thought I shouldn't be saying this. It's like you, you're almost going to like, just say it in order to forget about it and, you know, talk about the serious thing The, the the, I guess the possible thing but you said it and then all these wheels went in motion. You said something about relationships being such a key to it. So how do you go from that utterance to opening for Les Brown, who, if you're not aware, is an amazing professional speaker, renowned. And well, considered one of the top five often. Yeah. And, yeah. and, in, and in Bermuda. Of all places. Right, right. Okay. So yeah, there's a lot to unpack. So let's tell the real story. 
So first you said, you know, you're in a time of transition. You bring the group in. It's funny, Les has this phrase. He says, you can't see the picture when you're in the frame, right? And I knew I was in the frame. I needed a different perspective because I was spinning my wheels. I honestly didn't know you could get paid to speak. I had never, it never entered my consciousness that that was a reality. So when I said this, and I'll just use actual real names here. One of my friends, Elroy Smith, the time he ran three of the radio stations in Chicago. He said, when I said, but he stopped me, he said, well, you know, Les Brown works at one of my stations. He does a show every Sunday. He, he calls him literally right in the middle of our conversation. Can't get a hold of him. And then he says, gosh, I wish I'd known this earlier. I'm running a, you know, I also own a radio station in Bermuda, which I knew and I really wanted to help him with that. He said, we're doing a, an event with Les and three of his protégés. I would have loved to have put you on the ticket for that. Now, the reason he would have been willing to do it is over the past eight to 10 years prior, he had seen me present in a variety of spaces. So he knew I was confident and I could actually do it. So when he said that, my friend Roger, probably my best friend to this day, who looked at Elroy and said, really, Elroy, you would have? He goes, yeah. He goes, and he just looked at him really funny. And he, he goes, and Elroy just kind of paused. He said, I'll tell you what, if you can get to Bermuda, I can't pay you, but I'll put you on the bill. And then Roger, right in step, said, let me see that computer, gets on it and buys my airline ticket on the spot and says, you have no excuse. He literally worked on all my transportation, transportation to the airport. I had to literally fly. I remember this to this day. I had to fly into LaGuardia and then take a, a, a hired car from LaGuardia to Kennedy to get to Bermuda. He took care of all of that. So then always, okay, I'll just cover your hotel. Then why not? And so they literally in that moment said, you go. And so I went. It was myself, Les, and three of his protégés. And at the end, Butterfield Bank, his main sponsor, said, this was fantastic. We're going to put part of this on television. And we want to have a follow-up event for a full weekend. But I just want Tony Chapman and Les Brown. And so, like, three of my next four speaking events were actually opening for Les Brown. <laughs> so that's it's a crazy – it's like literally starting a band, a garage band, and your first – your first gig is opening for the Rolling Stones. That, that's basically what happened to me. It's a great analogy. I was trying to figure out what analogy to make there. That is a great analogy. Yeah. Um, okay. Tell me what the <laughs> challenge is because that sounds amazing. And I also know that that kind of quick success comes with a whole different range of challenges than, than the overnight success 10 years in the making story. So. Tell me, yeah, like when did it catch up to you that that's what was happening? Immediately, immediately. So, you know, because basically I went to Bermuda, opened for Les Brown, you know, 800 people. I mean, to the point where people recognized me at the airport flying home. And then I flew back and I'm doing nothing. I'm working my temp job and, and you know, I'm kind of back in my space. And I thought, okay, that was a moment, not a movement. I've got to come back. And figure this out. Now, my expectations were now warped, but I knew, okay, I got to like really learn this. And so I was fortunate that I got great time with Les on the next few engagements. And we even traveled together on one of them. 
But I also realized I now have to go and actually learn the business. I've proven that I have the talent and the skill set, but there's so much now to running a business. There's sales, there's marketing, there's understanding financial aspect, there's product creation, there's understanding, you know, okay, what, what exactly does the marketplace want? What are the hot topics? All of those things I had to figure out. And so that became my focus for the next two years. What year is this that this is taking place? This is 2006. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. I've talked to a lot of people who started their businesses in like 08, 09. And it sounds like yours was already kind of kind of had a runway a little bit when the recession hit. Is that? So <laughs> that's the other part, right? So um, 2006, that was the first engagement. Took a little bit of time. Later, 2006, the second. You know, really 2007, I'm building momentum. And then I get it to the point where I was working temp as a, an engineer, walked away from that, got my clientele. And a month later, the recession hit, all my clients vanished, and I'm starting over again. You know, and that was, that's the reality of the business. That's similar to what happened to a lot of people this year with, you know, COVID and the quarantine. And that's part of the ups and downs of being a business owner. You've got to You've got to learn how to ride those waves and learn, you know, when to be a good squirrel and put away your nuts and when you have to use them. Yeah. So I imagine relationships continue to play a big part in how you got yourself up and running those first couple of years because you did, there's a lot you didn't know. How soon after all this did you join National Speakers Association? <laughs> I joined National Speakers Association in 2016. So it was way after... So I did build some relationships with speakers. Um, my closest friend, Johnny, we, we really connected. Then he introduced me to another person who had just won the Toastmasters World Championship of Public Speaking. And, and so I had a network of relationships. So I didn't see the value of NSA at the time, but I, I knew I had people around me that I could bounce ideas off of in that. You know, we we kind of a similar spirit. Now, the problem is, is attrition, right? The recession knocked people out. Life knocks people out. That group went from a larger group to a smaller group. And literally one night I was laying in bed. I'll never forget this. And I had looked at NSA before, but I just didn't see any value to it. I, I remember thinking, what's the ROI? I don't see it. And it was about two in the morning. And I thought to myself, I can't keep doing this alone. I've, I've run out of my people. And so I, in the middle of the night with insomnia, I pulled out my laptop and I joined NSA in the middle of night. <laughs> oh, yeah. So my story is that I, I was speaking on the side of a, of a career, you know, uh -huh. uh, in a nonprofit, actually. And uh, for five years, being paid, doing my little gigs around the nonprofit world. And it finally reached the point where I was ready to leave. And I joined NSA the next month. Cool. And I joined because I had been, I was a fundraiser in my prior life. And so I was part of the association of fundraising professionals. So I figured that's what you do. You invest in your profession. And I was like, well, I could wait. Cause I mean, I didn't have any money coming in. <laughs> and you know, like it's a lot of money up front. I could wait, but I could spend the next year, 10 years trying to figure out how to do this or I could just dedicate that I'm going to go for the next 10 years and then decide whether it's worth it. 
So I've been going every year to the annual conference since 2015 and Very amazing cool. relationships have come from that, right? Like the people you meet, because it really is about the business of speaking. So it's, it's, it's so fascinating because I, I know you through world-class speakers, like the people you and I have in common are like top of their game people. Right. Um, and I don't know that I would have met them like randomly. Like, I feel like I sought out, this is what I, this, this is the kind of caliber people I want to be around. They're here. I'm going to go meet them. I'm going to offer value. And then one day, actually, what's funny is I didn't know about Scott's group. I knew two dozen people in the group before I knew the group existed. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah. I was like, oh, that's how y'all know each other. <laughs> same, same. Well, you know, and so that's the funny thing. Joining an SA and then getting into that Scott's group that you're mentioning, that changed the trajectory of my business, right? When I joined NSA, I was already at the level that people consider a CSP, certified speaking professional. That's, I had really been cranking this thing out and working it like a business. But the level of people that I got around changed my expectations. It changed my body of knowledge and it had an immediate impact on my business without question. And it did so in a way where it happened quote unquote organically because I wasn't trying to use these relationships for that. It was simply by being around these people that everything matured and grew. And I want to give a shout out to Scott Stratton because he's been amazing at bringing good quality people together and, you know, not, not based on the money they make or the fame they've achieved, but their heart. Like it's such a heart-based community that we were all, you know, part of. Um, I, I totally believe what you're saying is true. Like this, like it, that it, 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 if you're the best in your business, in your world, why do you keep, why do you push yourself? If you're surrounded by people who are really good now you've got to strive a little harder, right? Like, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's, well, you know, number one, I echo what you said. I cannot thank or shout out Scott Stratton nearly enough or Allison, you know, yeah, Allison, say that. Amazing. Um, you know, it's being around those types of people, getting validation from them, which is big. And then here's the difference I really learned. I would be around my previous peers and I would say, you know, I'm thinking about doing this. And they would think, say something like, okay, well, why would you do that? I got around this group of people and I said, I think I'm thinking about doing this. They said, well, why aren't you already doing it? It's a totally different perspective of, you know, go do this, try it. Think bigger, not minimize your, your options and your potential. And that just made a world of difference. I'm really curious how you settled upon your topic. Because it seems like when you came into speaking, it for a lot of speakers, it's because they have a passion about a topic. And then speaking is the way they best communicate that. And for you, you kind of liked speaking, and it sounds like you've been doing it for a while in different venues. How did you finally settle on what was the marketable topic that also felt like, like your gift for the world? Oh, yeah, that's really, that's a great, great question. So, yeah. Number one, my passion is speaking and it's the craft that I work on. And I think a lot of people, like you said, they focus on, well, I'm an expert at this. Well, I'm, I'm trying to be an expert at certain areas as well, but I love speaking. I, I absolutely love speaking. 
I, when I worked in nonprofit, I was in a situation where I could really help people. And a lot of it was faith-based. And I did everything from community service to at one point, we were really doing premarital counseling, all sorts of things. And I realized I love helping people just from a relational standpoint, helping people. And because of the work I did, I became very good at it. And in fact, I was passionate about it. And I consider myself an expert at it. So when I started speaking, you know, I did all the normal speaking topics, you know, motivational and communication and blah, blah, blah. And I realized, you know what? I get how people think. I get how they connect. So in my mind, where does that translate into the corporate world and the rest of the world? I said, okay, to me, leadership and team building is nothing but relationships. So leadership makes sense. So I started with that. I Because of some of the work I did in helping people make major changes in their lives, and then the work my wife was doing, change management and dealing with disruption became very natural because we were always working on that, always talking about it, dealing with it on an individual level and dealing it dealing with it on a, a corporate level. But then, you know, you know, people can't see us. And I mentioned this, but just in case they don't know, I'm black. Just thought I'd throw that out there. People always want to funnel minority African-American speakers into diversity and inclusion. I didn't want to do it. I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be pigeonholed. That's not the word I want to be in. Then, you know, the world changed. Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, Baltimore. And I kept saying, okay, I'm not an activist. I'm not an organizer. But how can I use what I do to, to, to help change things? At the same time, I was on my own reading about this new science called unconscious bias. It wasn't really much of a corporate topic yet. And as I had clients asking me still to do diversity and inclusion, I said, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll do it, but I have to do it my way. And, and here's what I want to go with. And it was, it was really the first time I'd even heard of somebody talking about it. So I started doing unconscious bias in 2015, 2016, somewhere around there. It was just getting started. And then what I realized is all of these topics tie together. See, the beauty of it is, if I come into an organization and they want to deal with a diversity and inclusion issue, okay, yeah, we could talk about bias and talk about diversity and inclusion, but then what we're really doing is creating a change in the culture. So if you don't understand how people adapt to change, it's going to fail. And then that means the leadership has to completely change their methodologies. And so all of these three topics, whether you start with bias or start with leadership or start with change, they're all interwoven to make a strong composite. And I realized this is the gift I can bring and it can make people's work life better. And because they spend more time at work than any place else, if you change their work life, that can spill over into the rest of their life. And so it almost became, people will actually say, Tony, it's almost like your ministry. And I said, yeah, it almost is like my ministry because that's how I treat it. And that's how I feel about it. Wow. Totally. I, I, I see how you, you create, it, it doesn't sound like on the surface, like it was things were all connected, but mm -hmm. it's, it's you that weaves them all together. 
You know, it's yeah, like you, because yeah. you have these different specialties and these expertise, your own lived experience. I also want to just note that from 2006 to 2015 or 2016 is nearly a decade. And, you know, like you're, you're a successful speaker, but here, you know, you did your work. You're like, you know, like people sometimes want it just to kind of happen. And uh, you, the, the topic kind of had to find you and it took a little while. And if you hadn't gone to change management and you'd gone right to diversity and inclusion, you wouldn't have this perspective of how change management works, right? And so it's like you had to go that route to end up where you are today. Yeah, Miles Davis has this quote. He says, it took a long time for me to learn how to play like myself. And I feel like that is the journey that most of us go on in life, right? We spend so many time absorbing other people's agendas and perspectives for what our life should be. And then we finally grow into this, the buzzword is authentic, but we grow into this place where we figure out where we fit in and we're confident enough to do it and we're knowledgeable enough to do it. And so this convergence happens that along with, with opportunity. And, and I believe that that's where people really find their sweet spot is they've really prepared for it, but now they can do it in a way that's 100% them. Yeah. Yeah. It's no accident. That you are who you are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I want to make sure we, we touch base on the idea of, of relationships and particularly in the context of how do you stay in touch? You know, you've got your like innermost circle of people that you're going to, you're going to stay in touch with them without really a ton of effort. Um, and then there's a, I always think of sort of the second and third layer or second or third tier out um, the people you might see once a year at a conference or you work with five years ago, people you like, but you don't really have a reason to work with them right now. So there, there's no thing happen. You'd have to make a certain effort to cross paths with them in some way. So how do you nurture and sustain those connections? Do you have any habits, philosophies, practices? You know what? I'm pretty organic. I don't have a good CRM. I have everything on a spreadsheet and I just check up on people. I think I've realized I'm a, I'm literally a relationship-driven person. I have a relationship-driven business. So I just email my clients to say, hey, how you doing? You know, how you know, how are you doing? Or, you know, when when the pandemic hit and most of us had all of our clients, you know, basically stop business, especially if you're a speaker because you're not going in anywhere, um, you know, in person. I helped a lot of people just brainstorm their way out of this. Okay. So here's what you should be thinking. Have you considered this? What? And it, there was no business thing out of it. I wasn't trying to make money. Now business came out of it. It was just for years we had built relationships. They knew I sincerely cared about them. And they sincerely cared about me. And so it's unfortunately, I don't have this incredible, here's my system because I don't really do that. Um, what I find myself doing is just, you know, a couple of times a month, check my um, spreadsheet. I go, huh, I wonder how they're doing. I should check up on them. And it literally is that. And, it, and I think it helps that it comes from that place of my heart that I'm really just checking up on them. And there may be a, hey, do you need anything? You know, can I help you business wise? But I also think the sincerity of the checkout really does come through. How did you build that initial list of people? Speaking, honestly, I figured, so, you know, so here was the blessing and the curse of not having a bunch of people around me when I started speaking, right? Had a couple of friends, talked about the attrition. So 
there weren't a lot of people to say, okay, here's how you build a website. Here's how you get a video. Here's how you market. Here's how you do sales. I knew I could speak. And so I picked certain events and I went and I spoke at them, some of them for free, some of them at a reduced fee, but I was fairly strategic about the events. And then I talked to people. Actually, okay, a couple of things. A, I would always do, you know, you, you get everyone's business cards back when people had business cards, right? I give away something, whatever. And I'd, I would email them for a little, a little bit, but I really didn't do a good job of that. Also, every conference, I just hung out. I'm in the lobby. I'm in the hospitality suite. I'm in all of you. I don't come in and bolt out. And I just started meeting people. And I actually got more business. I've got an equal amount of business from the people I met in hospitality suites and in the hallway than as I did from people who saw me speak because they just liked me. We connected. I, I said the right thing. And so, you know, I would have like this spreadsheet of contacts that I could, you know, send out a mail or two. But normally once I talk to someone for at least a period of time, they ended up on the spreadsheet. Wow. How many people ended up on that spreadsheet over time? We're talking hundreds. Uh, yeah. Hundreds. Wow. Yeah. You know, if I had a mailing list, like my mailing list, if I actually use my mailing list, I think I have 5,000 emails on it. Um, I, that spreadsheet right now is down to about 90. Yeah, yeah. Because people, we've just lost touch or something happened or whatever. But I still have about 90 people on my spreadsheet. You know, I have a challenge. I have a lot of one-on-one clients that I work with as a, as a business strategy coach. And one of the exercises I often ask them to do is to write a list of 100 people. And the criteria is they would remember your name. And if you heard from them out of the blue, you'd be happy to hear from them. And then sometimes there's the third criteria about like what industry they're in or something more about like the work you're trying to do in the world so that there's maybe more values or interests aligned. But really the first two criteria is they'd remember your name and you'd be happy to hear from them out of the blue. And people at first go, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I could write 100 people. And then they write 150 people the first time I sit down because they're just like, oh, right. And that person, that person. Right. And like, I have forgotten more people than I will ever like meet. You know, like <laughs> there are so many people I've met in my life. And uh, it, and when they have these conversations, I actually, <laughs> I had one one-on-one client who was ready to sign up for a third six-month term with me. And that was the first exercise of the third term. And we hadn't actually contracted for the third term. And she met someone who gave her a gig that was, uh, that was a full-time pay. She wasn't looking for a job. She was a speaker. <laughs> so <laughs> she got landed a sweet job that she didn't want. So she asked for everything under the sun. And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I can keep doing my own thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so wow. and she goes, Robbie, I, I can't work with you anymore. Cause I don't, I'm not building my business the way it was before. <laughs> you know what? Blessings. It's like amazing. Right. right. It's like that. That's great. And all because she called up some people and said, Hey, what's up? How are you doing? Like good yeah. things can happen. But, but you know, the weird thing about that is the, the beauty of it is it keeps you from profiling who do you think is going to be of value and who you don't, right? Like I think of my biggest client or my most consistent client that I've had, really they've been a client since 2010. And I didn't, you know, person talked to me at the end of class, think you'd be a great fit, blah, blah, blah. Didn't think anything would come of it for a year, didn't. 
And then all of a sudden, you know, boom, they're my biggest client. And had I not put them on that spreadsheet, if I just said, yeah, you know, looking at their card, not a big title, doesn't seem that important. All the all the reasons that I wouldn't follow up with them because they didn't fit my profile. If I had done any of that, that would have dramatically changed my business. Yeah. I think another thing is that it sounds like when when you have that moment of, oh, I wonder how so-and-so is doing, you don't hesitate to reach out. And I think a lot of people have some sort of block around that. Yeah. You know, okay. So someone said something to me. Uh, <laughs> no, I actually overheard someone say something. Um, a friend of mine was talking to someone else. and said, oh, I was just thinking about you. And they go, girl, your thoughts don't do any good. Call me. You know, the minute she said that, I thought, there you go. That's it. That's the answer. Just because I'm thinking about you, she doesn't really, I mean, that's cute. But if I'm thinking about you, there's a reason. Let me at least let you know I'm thinking about you, even if nothing else comes of it. And, you know, that's just, that's become a really cool thing outside of business. Just, it keeps my friendships alive. And it's a great thing. Yeah. Yeah. You and me both. That's awesome. So we're getting to the, to the wrap this up, but I, I have one of my favorite questions here, Tony, which is, you know, I know we're going to stay connected. We've got this amazing network that we are part of right. and I'm thrilled to have this one-on-one time, but I'm hoping a year from now we get to cross paths again. And I say, wow, it's been about a year. I want to know a year from now, what we're going to be celebrating for you. Like, what are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? Business-wise, life-wise, what was space? All of the above. Business-wise, you're we're going to be celebrating that I am going to be still a speaker, but my consulting part is going to change because I'm going to be transforming organizations' entire culture. I have one client lined up now. This last presidential executive order may have hurt that at least for a period of time, but when if that gets lifted, not only are they good to go, there's 15 other clients that they want to refer to me to do that. Those are massive undertakings. Those are three to five year engagements. On a personal level, we're going to be celebrating that I'm going to be moving out of New York to Michigan. You know, I spent time with my folks twice this summer. I have seen, I have seen the need for me as their only child to be closer on a lot of levels. And so we're planning on packing our bags, leaving the Big Apple and going back to Michigan just so I can be closer to my family. Wow. I can't wait to celebrate all that with you. Yeah. It sounds sounds like a good year ahead. Uh, I would love to know how can people find you and follow your work? Sure. Easiest way, website, TonyChapman.com. Uh, LinkedIn is really simple. Tony Chapman. <laughs> it's Tony Chapman. Uh, that's actually my LinkedIn address. Really, I'm Tony Chapman on everything except for Instagram, where I am Tony Chapman Speaks. I'm really active on Instagram. And what I'm, I'm really upping over the next month, my social media game. But if you connect with me on my website and email me, I respond to every email. I, I make sure I'm in touch with everyone. And that's probably the safest start. Fantastic. We'll have all those links, plus the links to your TEDx and to your book on Amazon at our show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Tony, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been so great. Robbie, thanks for having me and uh, thanks for your friendship. Really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Tony. Such a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 221. 
That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as over 200 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which are your favorite interviews. Do you want to become a certified virtual event professional? Hashtag no more bad Zoom. This is an earned designation available to graduates of the 5% Advantage program, a four-week certification program that helps presenters and meeting professionals grow in their confidence with Zoom, online facilitation, and virtual event design. Speakers signed up for this program to become better at presenting online, and meeting planners and virtual assistants have completed this program to learn the skills needed to become professional Zoom producers. Email me for more information and to be added to the waitlist for the next cohort. Email Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com. That's Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com. If you enjoyed this episode with Tony, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at iTunes.OnTheSchmooze.com. Thank you in advance, and I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's on the schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.